If you brought a Bible with you this morning, I would have you turn with me to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 3, verse number 15 this morning, Genesis 3, verse number 15. There was a certain professor of a great law school who used to begin his class each year by putting two numbers on the blackboard. He would put a number four, and then some space away, he would put a number two. And then, of course, he would ask his students for the solution to the problem. Immediately, one student would call out six for four plus two equals six. Then another student would say two for four minus two equals two. And then multiple students would say, no, it's, it's eight for four times two equals eight. But at each answer, the teacher would always shake his head in the negative, And then the professor would, would point out the fatal error in their answers. He would say, the reason why you cannot find the solution is because you have failed to identify the problem. And today we live in a world that is desperately looking for solutions without knowing the problem. We have some of the factors. We have a four and we have a two, but we cannot solve the problem because we neglect the most important part of the problem. For example, Is the solution to man's problems today gun control or birth control or border control? Is the solution to man's problems today more money or more education or more government? We cannot propose a solution until we identify the problem and this morning I declare to you that the problem is sin. And the solution then is Jesus Christ. In Genesis 3, we learn of man's problem, his sin. And then we are also given the promised solution, and that is the Savior. The solution to man's sin problem is first declared in Genesis 3, verse number 15. It's what theologians call the Proto-Evangelium or the first gospel. You see, here in the book of Genesis, we read of the first day and the first plant and the first animal and the first man and woman, and we read of the first gospel promise that was ever given before the angel ever came to Mary in Luke chapter 1 or to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, before the Old Testament prophet Micah uh, foretold of the Messiah's birth in Bethlehem or ever Isaiah explained that Jesus would be born of a virgin, God promised a savior to defeat the devil and redeem man from the fall. And this good news of great joy for all people was first issued by God himself all the way back in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3, verse number 15, the Proto-Evangelium or the first gospel. Look at it with me, Genesis 3, verse number 15. God says to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, Satan, and you shall bruise his heel. This morning from Genesis 3.15, the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel, let's pray. God in heaven, thank you so much for the written revelation of your word to us, the Holy Scripture. We thank you for the chance that we have to read it and to understand it because of the ministry of the Spirit of God. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see clearly this morning that we would see First, our problem, but then in a greater light, your solution 
the Messiah, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Genesis 3.15, the Proto-Evangelium or the first gospel, we begin with number one, the reason for the prophecy or the promise of the gospel. The reason for the promise of the gospel was predicated upon a problem. In Genesis 1 and 2, God created all that is and he declared it to be good. After his creation of man, he said that it was very good for he created man in God's image after his likeness. And God enjoyed fellowship with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden until the day when the problem occurred. And I'll give you the problem this morning with single word subpoints. You see them there in your notes. It begins with Satan. Letter A is Satan. The Bible tells us that Satan was the most beautiful and powerful of all of God's angelic creation, but Satan lifted himself up in pride against God, was cast from heaven. In Genesis 3, he embodied a serpent and tempted Eve by questioning God. We studied this last week, but it bears our rereading. Genesis 3, verse number 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it nor shall you touch it lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. For God knows in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And the problem began with Satan questioning or introducing doubt about what God had said. Folks, I would say to you that anytime you begin questioning or challenging or doubting or dismissing God's word, know that it is an assault of the wicked one. The problem of Satan. There's also then, of course, the problem of sin, let her be. And at this point in history, sin entered the world for Adam and Eve disobeyed God's command and ate of the forbidden fruit. Verse number six, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. Sin is thinking or acting contrary to God's word. And Adam's sin plunged the human race into sin positionally and practically. We are all born in sin and we all behave as sinners. The Bible teaches us that all have sinned. And this morning Bob Allen read from Romans chapter five that explains to us one man's disobedience caused sin to pass on the whole human race. There's the problem of Satan, of sin. Third, the problem of shame. And immediately now, in verse number seven, Adam and Eve experienced shame because of their sin and tried to cover themselves. Look at verse seven. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Folks, shame is the natural impulse and the consequence of everyone who who sins. Even before the giving of the law, The law of God was written on man's hearts, his conscience bearing witness whether what he does is right or wrong, Romans chapter two tells us. And Adam and Eve experienced shame. But it's more than that, they then experienced separation, letter D. Separation in verses eight and nine, then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. 
And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? There's separation. The Bible tells us in Isaiah 59, verse number two, that sin has separated between us and our God. And the fellowship between God and man is broken when sin is committed and concealed. But God's heart is to seek and to save the lost sinner, to redeem man from his sin. Therefore, in verse number nine, God came into the garden and he called out to Adam, where are you? It's not that God didn't know where Adam and Eve were. Of course he knew where they were. God is omniscient, but it was to make a point. Why are you hiding from me, Adam and Eve? Why are you separated from me? Which led then, of course, to the problem of sentence. In verses 14 and 15, God pronounced a sentence upon Satan. Then, in verse 16, God pronounced a sentence upon the woman. And then in verses 17 through 19, God pronounced a sentence upon Adam. And the greatest and the gravest of all of these sentences is summed up back in chapter two. If you turn the the page back to chapter two, verses 15 and following, then the Lord God took man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat it. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die, chapter two, verse 17. And so folks, the problem is identified. It's man's fall in the Garden of Eden and the consequences of their sin. Man sinned and is under the curse of death. Romans chapter five, verse number 12. Through one man, sin entered the world and death through sin. And thus death spread to all men for all have sinned. And you say, well, Pastor Matt, didn't we, didn't we rehearse this last week? This is uh, kind of deja vu all over again. And I would submit that we cannot overstate this problem. The fall of man and the sin of man is the problem of man. It was Charles Spurgeon who once said, few preachers of religion do believe thoroughly the doctrine of the fall. Or else they think that when Adam fell down, he broke his little finger and did not break his neck and ruin his race. What we read of in Genesis 3 is the reason that there is corruption and conflict in the world today. It explains why there is death and disease in the world today. The problem is sin and Satan and separation from God. And because of Satan, we need a Messiah to reverse the curse and and, and crush the serpent's head. 1 John 3 verse number eight says that Jesus was born that he might destroy the works of the devil. Because of sin, we need a Messiah to redeem us from the fall and the curse of sin. Ephesians 1 7 says in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Because of shame and, and separation and the sentence of death, we need God to forgive us and reconcile us to himself. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 18, God has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. And so the reason for the prophecy in Genesis 3.15, the reason for the promise of the first gospel in Genesis 3.15 is because of the problem. And so then we're given a solution. And you say, okay, pastor, but 
I, I get the problem in Genesis 3. We, we've covered it now for two weeks. But I don't understand how Genesis 3 verse 15 presents a solution. What is being said in Genesis 3 verse number 15? And, 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 and that's fair enough because I don't think Adam and Eve would have understood Genesis 3 15 um, at this point either. And, and, and I think for Satan at this point, he was gleefully thinking, I have turned Adam and Eve against God. I've turned all of humanity against God. I've succeeded. But in a bit of poetic justice, God is saying to Satan, I am turning myself against you. So in Genesis 3, verse 15, God speaks to the serpent, to Satan, and he cursed Satan and his seed to be forever against the woman and her seed. And Genesis 3.15 introduces a cosmic conflict of perpetual enmity between Satan's seed and Eve's seed. And this is where we are given, number two, the revelation of the person of the gospel. The revelation of the person of the gospel. Look at verse 15 again with me. This is God speaking to Satan. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So what we need to do is identify the the seed here in verse 15. In verse 15, God spoke of the serpent's seed, Satan's seed. Now, Satan has no offspring and is not producing any offspring. Satan's seed here are Satan's seed followers. It was in John chapter 8 verse 44 that Jesus said to the wicked scribes and Pharisees, he said, you are of your father the devil and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources. He is a liar and the father of it. And so Satan's seed are the wicked children of the devil. In verse 15, God also spoke of the woman's seed. That is her descendants. Now, it's it's a little bit, in fact, it's entirely quite unusual to speak of a child as the seed of the woman. We know biologically, of course, that, that the seed comes from the man. And in every other place in the Bible, it is said that the seed comes from the man. In fact, when you read of the family trees in the Bible, it always names a man who begot a man who begot a man. Working backward in the Bible genealogy, we speak of one's father, one's grandfather, one's great-grandfather. So there's something very unique and irregular here being suggested by a woman's seed. There's also a very significant pronoun in verse number 15. It's the pronoun he, capitalized he, it's singular. The seed of Eve is not every child to be born to Eve and her offspring and all of the human race, but a specific, singular, masculine seed. And that specific, singular, masculine seed is a reference to Jesus Christ. Genesis 3, verse 15, is the first biblical revelation of the Messiah. If you think I'm making too much out of a a pronoun, I would cite a parallel in Galatians 3, verse 15, where the apostle Paul wrote, now to Abraham and his seed, capital S, were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed who is Christ. 
And what Paul is saying in that context is that the blessings promised to Abraham and his descendants would ultimately come through one single individual, the Messiah. And folks, would you know it? There is only one man who was ever born without the seed of man. That was Jesus Christ, the virgin born. Galatians 4.4 says born of a woman. Isaiah 7.14 says born of a virgin. Matthew's gospel confirms that Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of Mary without the procreation of Joseph's seed. And so it was the virgin birth of Jesus that protected Jesus from the sin nature, from the seed of man that is passed down from generation to generation. And so consequently, the virgin birth of Jesus is not a peripheral issue. It is a fundamental of the faith. For Jesus was born without the seed of of man. And for that reason is the sinless man. So what we have here in Genesis 3.15 is is the first prophetic revelation of the Messiah to reverse the curse of sin in the garden and defeat the wicked one, Satan. It's remarkable. Now, I don't believe that Adam and Eve fully understood Genesis 3.15 at that time. But I do think that Satan came to understand it pretty quickly because time and time again, Satan made every effort to destroy the coming of the Messiah and the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15 through the seed of Eve. And over and over again throughout human history, you know this, Satan attacked from the rear, bruised the Messiah's heel as it were, until Jesus Christ crushed his head, which is the results of the power of the gospel, the results of the power of the gospel. Jesus' birth began the fulfillment of Genesis 3 verse 15 and Satan knew it. So what did Satan do? He, he sought to destroy Jesus with Herod's edict of all of the infants in Bethlehem to, to be killed. And then Satan made every effort in the wilderness to destroy Jesus at the, the temptation and, um, and then the religious opposition to, ch- to Jesus' public ministry and, and the intent of the religious leaders to, to, to stone him or then to crucify him on the cross where Jesus was bruised, Isaiah says, he was bruised for our iniquity. Do, do you catch that? Genesis 3, verse 15, you shall bruise his heel. Jesus was bruised for our iniquity. And the result of Christ's birth, the result of Christ's life, the result of Christ's death is the fulfillment of Genesis 3 verse 15. One Bible commentator has written this, Satan was majestically triumphant in this battle when he nailed Jesus to the cross. The prime object of all his striving through all the ages was achieved, but he failed For the prophecy which had said that he would indeed bruise the seed of the woman had also said that his head would be crushed by Christ's heel. I I have copied this for you there on the back of your notes. The author goes on to say this. Thus, while Satan was celebrating his triumph in battle over the Son of God, the full weight of the atonement was accomplished by the crucifixion which the devil had effected. It came down on him and he realized that all this time 
So far from successfully battling against the Almighty, he had actually been carrying out the purposes of the all-wise God. Isn't that great? Satan unwittingly was helping to bring to fulfillment the prophecy and the promise back in Genesis 3, verse number 15. The incarnation of Jesus, born as the seed of a woman, and the crucifixion of Jesus to die as the Lamb of God resulted in the solution to the problem back in Genesis 3 so that Paul would write to the Romans that the gospel is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. The results of the power of the gospel And then we know if we continue to read through the New Testament and we come to the the book of the Revelation, chapter 20, verse number 10, the Bible tells us of the end when Satan will be cast into the lake of fire forever. You see, folks, the problem was sin. The solution is the Savior. It was at the Wartburg Castle in Germany in 1521-1522, Wartburg Castle in Germany, that Martin Luther spent 10 months in hiding as a fugitive from the religious authorities that were after him, of course, because of his preaching and teaching, the just shall live by faith, and his parting from the Roman Catholic Church. But there in a small room at the Wartburg Castle, some of you have been there, small room, perhaps no bigger than 15 feet square, Martin Luther anguished, often feeling the attacks of Satan. Luther wrote of that time, he said, I fought the devil with ink. He may have meant that he fought the devil by translating the New Testament into the German language, which he did there at that place, or tradition suggests that at some point he threw his ink well in protest at the devil's opposition of him. He got angry and just hurled his inkwell. But in either case, we we know that the satanic attacks and the oppression that Martin Luther endured were, were many there, yet the strength and safety of the Wartburg Castle and other fortresses where where he hid gave him the inspiration to write his famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And one of the stanzas that Martin Luther wrote there He says, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure for lo, his doom is sure. His head will be crushed. One little word shall fell him. What is the one little word that crushes the serpent's head and destroys him? I submit to you that that one little word, it's it's a name. It's Jesus. It's Christ. And so while we endure the suffering of life in a fallen world, folks, this world is broken. Watch the news. Listen to the radio. Look across the street. We can identify many, many, many problems 
in this world, but there is ultimately one problem. It's sin, it's Satan, it's shame, it's separation, it's the sentence of God because of the fall of man, and there is only one solution, and that is Jesus Christ. And I promise you on the authority of God's word that someday the wicked one will be ultimately destroyed. He was defeated at the cross. He'll be cast into the lake of fire forever. And so there is no need to fear. In fact, until then, we can go on singing because Jesus is coming soon. Let's pray. God in heaven, I pray that you would help us not only to recognize our problem, but to see the Savior. Lord, perhaps there are some here this morning under the sound of my voice who maybe for the first time recognize their sin problem and their need of a Savior. Oh God, draw them to yourself by your grace and grant them the faith to believe so that they might be made whole from their sin. Lord, may you grant us the perseverance of faith to continue until the day when we see you and you right all the wrongs and our salvation is complete. We'll thank you for this in Jesus' name, amen.